Hello, everyone. Hello. Hi, welcome to Too Legit to QT with me, Darquaya Connor, aka Koya. Today, I am so excited because I am with the director and stars of the documentary Florian Nights. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Welcome. So this particular documentary really just touched me. I had no idea that firefighters went through everything that you all go through. I mean, I think it's one of those things where you know that law enforcement, police officers and firefighters that, you know, you deal with these very like traumatic events, but I don't think I really just as a as a citizen, I don't think I ever really thought about the impact of dealing with these tumultuous situations. And so I really enjoyed the documentary and how motorcycles actually became a form of therapy for you all. And so number one, congratulations. Um, you ought to be very proud of yourselves. Um, but I just first off wanted to know, like, what was the inspiration for actually putting together um, all of this information and talking about the Florian Nights. Maybe you can talk about that, um, Pan, and just how you all came together and said, we're going to get sit down and we're going to make this documentary. Yeah, um, I think, well, I live in the city of Vancouver, and that's where the production company is based out of as well. Um, and uh, so it was brought to my attention that this motorcycle club of firefighters had, had popped up in... Uh, in our neighborhood. And I thought, you know, I never really heard of that before. You know, I, I had never put riding a motorcycle and serving in, uh, you know, as a first responder in the same conversation. Um, but that's just me being kind of a bit of a naive citizen because for, you know, generations, there was a very clear, um, you know, uh, thread between being a first responder, trauma, and the coping strategy of a motorcycle. So we, um, we set out on this journey in April of 2018, um, and uh, it's been three and a half years since. And we've been, you know, making this film, Florian's Nights, and kind of, um, you know, I've been my crew and I have been sleeping in fire halls across North America, and you know, in our production van, you know, next to you know sometimes 20 riders at a time, you know, on the streets of Detroit. Yeah, so it's been uh, it's been a really electrifying experience, and. Uh, and we were just so happy to be at the finish line. And I can say that nobody was injured in the making of this film. So. <laughs> well, you all look like you had a blast. I just wanted to go around and have uh, our stars introduce themselves. Um, Jack and um, the gentlemen that are in, if you can just go around and just state your name. Um, I'm Jack Cooper, I'm a captain in Toronto Fire Service. Uh, I've been uh, doing it for 43 years, 38, 30, 39 at the time of the filming. Uh, enjoyed being a part of it. It was it was great, a great uh, experience, and we hope it helps a lot of people. And where were you? Where were you stationed at? I'm stationed in downtown Toronto. It's right in the middle of the city, so it's the it's the station's been there since uh, 1924. Originally placed on about a block away in the 1860s, probably okay. old school fire. Okay, still stationed, still stationed. And yeah. then the gentleman underneath me, if you can just introduce yourselves and the station that you were at or you're currently at. I'm a retired captain from North Vancouver City, and I was also with the North Shore Search and Rescue, which is a volunteer search and rescue team. 
And I've been retired for six years, so now I can uh, ride full time. Okay, okay, nothing holding you back. Huh? <laughs> uh, my name's Rod McDonald. I'm a 35 year retired vet of the Vancouver Fire Department. Last seven years as a battalion chief. And uh, primarily I worked uh, a huge part of my career on the east side of Vancouver, East Vancouver area, Strathcona, which is uh, where uh, Skid Row is located amongst other areas in Vancouver. Oh, wow. Wow. Very, very interesting. Okay. And so when you found out about this motorcycle group, Pan, how did you choose these three gentlemen and the other subjects for the film because there's there's a ton of there, there's a ton of writers but these particular gentlemen they have certain stories how did you narrow it down because that interview process when making a documentary can can be very tedious <laughs> oh for sure and uh i think once you get a firefighter talking they don't stop right? so, <laughs> you know, i got I, I've got hard drives upon hard drives of, uh, of, of interviews. And, uh, but what was really interesting about that is firefighters hadn't really spoken up for a lot of generations as it mm -hmm. pertained to mental health. So the contrast of that being that I found this motorcycle club where guys were, were willing to speak up for the first time, you know, in some of these departments histories, uh, especially to a, a film crew, you know, I think things had happened in the media here and there, um, you know, recently, but in terms of a full feature length film, I think this was pretty unprecedented for a lot of the departments that we dealt with. Mm -hmm. So it really was, it, it was a joy. I think the, the, the kind of cream rose to the top when you think about, you know, um, I think a lot of guys have really interesting stories in the fire department. You know, no guy goes without having a narrative, mm -hmm. but I think the, you know, the gentlemen we have with us now and the ones you see in the movie, um, we're willing to, uh, we're comfortable to step into the light to kind of speak on behalf for all those other members. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so the stories that you hear in the film and the stories of our of our individuals, I, I wouldn't necessarily call them unique in that a lot of firefighters go through the very similar experiences. But these are our gentlemen who are speaking on behalf of, of all the others who have come before them and who will come after them. Mm. And, there's, and, and, you know, when I was watching the documentary, I was just like, first off, just to let you gentlemen know, it was just so courageous because I know that when you're dealing with sensitive subject matter like this, oftentimes you're, you know, reminiscing on various experiences. And I know that you probably were doing this to help other people. Um, Rod, I was, maybe you can answer this question. Why motorcycles? Because when you guys talked about the adrenaline rush and this adrenaline activity, what makes riding a motorcycle, and maybe the rest of you all, Jack, and you can answer that as well. What's the difference between the adrenaline rush of a motorcycle versus another activity like boxing or, um, I don't know, like hiking up like a, a, a cliff? I, I, I just, I would, I would like to know that. <laughs> Well, uh, to take you back a little bit, it might help. Uh, it's generally believed that um, when the World War II uh, fighter pilots, they, they flew the, the, the uh, P-48 Mustangs and so forth, and they came back from the war in the States, they found that there was a very empty hole in their life, and 
the adrenaline rush that was gone and coming back in and fitting into society was virtually impossible and these guys kind of got together and they formed a motorcycle club right and uh, that was uh, because it was just a, a way to bond plus it was living on the edge again a little bit with speed and uh, all of the elements that you feel when you're riding a bike or flying a plane that has an open cockpit so for me it's kind of similar to that uh, i've rode all my life but the the need for speed and the need to to forget things uh was it became much more important and uh it was also i i found out it was very healing um more so than ever in my life especially when i was retired uh, so that's what it represented for me mm -hmm. how about for you well, it's funny that you mentioned climbing and hiking because I would get the same kind of high when I was with the, the rescue team. And I used to do high altitude climbs too, but to do a high altitude mountain, there's a month long commitment. And oh. you have to like go, you, have, you basically leave your house for, or for a month. And that's what you do for an entire month. Whereas a bike, I can just go jump on it whenever I feel like. If I'm having a bad day, go jump on the bike for an hour. And nobody phones me and goes, hey, Eric, you want to go climb Everest? But they'll go, hey, Eric, you want to go for a quick ride? Go, yeah, sounds good. <laughs> so it's something that you can do consistently that's not necessarily, doesn't take up a, a huge time commitment. Um, and then also camaraderie. Um, I, I used to box, um, and I think that I definitely fell in love with my community the way that you all fell in love with your community. Um, a little bit more than I probably liked boxing at one point because <laughs> you, you start to learn about people in their lives and what their, it was a lot of guys in there, um, everyone, just so you know, their, what their wives were doing. Um, a lot of police officers, some firefighters as well. Um, and, and yeah, it definitely is a sense of community. How about you, Jack? Yeah. What, what makes riding a motorcycle different than any other adrenaline rush activity for you? I think I started doing it, well, I started doing it again when I was in my 40s and I started riding to the fire station, excuse me, my 50s, and I started riding to the station. And I was found, I was finding when I got to the station that I felt better about going to work, about, about the, the, the driving to work time than I had been doing when I was riding in my car. Mm -hmm. And then from then on, I started riding a little bit more often. And like Eric was saying, you can get on at any time. And I was finding that I would get off it and I had forgotten whatever, whatever the stresses were that had built up during the course of the week or the month or the day, whether they be family, job related or any kind of stress. So it's became more or less a therapeutic use that I was starting to have with it. And then we discovered all of us discovered each other through the Florian's nights that, that had similar experiences, yet there's thousands of miles between us. So it became something for us. Mm, I love that. I love that. And so making this documentary, um, I know that it looks like it really wasn't, it was a lot of fun. Um, some documentaries can be very tedious. How long did it take from you creating the concepts, doing the interviews to the completion of the documentary pan? It, uh, from April of 2018 until, it's funny because the movie is older than my son. Which I, you know, kind of laugh about, laugh about with my wife. I go that the, the, this movie was kind of my first baby. Uh, but the uh, 
it, uh, from, from April, 2018 up until, you know, my God, I, I was even on the phone today with our group. We're still a little fine tuning here and there. So until this t today, you know, um, so we're looking at over three years. Um, it was, I knew that we were stepping into an arena that was, um, that needed a lot of care and attention. We were breaking new ground within a lot of fire departments. We were telling a story within the motorcycle community that maybe hadn't really been told in this way before. And so I wanted to, I, I really, see, I sometimes get frustrated when, you know, media outlets will look at a story like this and kind of just, um, it's easy to have a perception about a fire department or have a perception about a motorcycle club. Um, you know, they're two very visual you know, um, ways of life. And from the outside looking in, you, you can make a, a kind of a surface based um, opinion on, on what that firefighter is doing on, on any given call or what that biker club is doing when they're riding down the street in your neighborhood. And so I thought we need to take our time with this. And I need to talk to a lot of people in many different cities. And it can't be, you know, for me within the fire departments, it was like, it took a while because, you know, how do you get permission from the Detroit Fire Department? How do you get permission from the New York Fire Department or from Toronto or Vancouver? These are big cities, big departments. Um, they have PR teams. You know, they they are looking at you and wondering, are we really going to let a camera crew inside our, our, our fire halls and on our rigs and to our calls? And that took a lot of trust building and it took a lot of time. And uh, that's why, you know, a movie like this can take... Uh, you know, three and a half years is because you have to build that trust and that rapport with not just the firefighters, but the institutions that represent them. So it, it was tedious and, and the editing process, again, like I mentioned earlier, um, we, we had hundreds of hours of footage. And so, it, you know, it really did take me a year and a half to craft the story. And, and I knew that there was a lot at stake. I think guys were speaking up for the first time in their careers, careers that are 35 plus years old. And, uh, and they're choosing this one movie and maybe they'll never speak again, but this one movie is going to be their moment. And that I, I put a lot of weight to that. And so um, the process was tedious and, and it did take some time, but I'm, I'm just glad we're, we're premiering September 9th and then the rest is history. Uh, that's so exciting. That's so exciting. Um, I believe it's Rod. Were you the one where when you went over, you drew a map? At, at, like at one point and it looked like at first when I looked at it, I was like is that a heart but I don't think it was a heart it, it was a, a circle circumference and you you went over at well I don't want to give give too much of it away but that moment when you went over all of the things that you had experienced within that radius um I just I was like my god um okay um just last week, the fire department is like around the corner from my house and they refused to fix the elevator. Two people were stuck in the elevator and there were like three firefighters here within five minutes. And it's something that I never thought about, but I was like, oh, like I'm in a really good area where if I get stuck in an elevator, something minute as an elevator, a firefighter will be here within five minutes. Like I had to call the fire department and literally I could hear the sirens immediately. And I just saw all these guys and they were, they had all these tools. And I just, I don't know. I think like being a citizen, you just don't really realize like how important it is. But even when you map that journey out, 
it just it was really touching and i was just curious to know did you all have like a therapist on set to help you deal with that um sensitive subject matter like how how were you able to navigate those that part of the interview because rod i mean you opened up your heart how did you feel and then how were you how did you all navigate that process okay i'll uh try and address a few of those questions um first off on the elevator <laughs> sometimes that, uh, the guys beside me will tell you this sometimes elevator calls are can be quite serious uh people have extraordinary panic attacks or there could be a, a diabetic who's needs uh, some med uh, sugars or whatever it's not always just uh, getting them out of the elevator it's, can be kind of, can be kind of hectic, but as far as the the scene in the movie goes, um, that was a, a map of the city, and um, I had been asked to just put pins in to where some of the calls I went to that were difficult, and they still reside within my brain. Mm. I also wanted to say that that is not even close. It's not even close. To, there could have been a hundred more pins on that map in that area. Uh, and some of the calls that uh, were left out were just, they're just not going to be the kind of thing that you'd share with people because I, it actually can be traumatic to the viewer or the listener. Mm -hmm. As far as filming it, uh, it was very interesting. Um, as these were all unrehearsed, there's no script. It was spontaneous. And as I went through it, it all started coming back even more. And in a way, it got easier. But what I found really telling and really quite fascinating is when I finally saw the finished film with my brothers, uh, my scene came up and I broke down. Mm. That's when I broke down is when I watched it. I actually just broke down. I was sobbing. And do I have a problem admitting that? Not at all, because that's that's PTSD, and that's uh, that's the reality of it. And where I am today compared to where I was, are uh, they're light years apart. There's been a lot of healing going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you, thank you for sharing that, Rod. As far as a psychologist or a counselor on the set, we didn't have anything like that. But what we did have was we had each other. And when I was feeling triggered or traumatized, I would just talk to my brothers. And it was the best medicine I could get. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. I love that. Um, Jack, I love that, Eric. Jack, I um, maybe you can answer this question. I'm just curious to know, it was very interesting to me that a government organization, um, and you spoke about PAN, like, um, the media and how how bike biker groups are portrayed and whatnot. Usually, typically, at least in, in my experience and in my my limited knowledge, in government organizations, they like with veterans and whatnot. They usually offer them some type of mental health resources. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it's different for firefighters and? Because in the film, you talked about, you all talked about how it's kind of suppressed, uh, that, that historically it's like you just kind of like get over it, 
you know, keep moving, keep going on. But you guys are dealing with trauma. Um, I mean, I'm, somebody, I think you, you spoke about that, Rod, with somebody have, being decapitated. Like, the, I'm just curious to know, why do you think that it's different for firefighters that they don't have access to mental health resources, like within your organizations? We do. Uh, we've got resources. We just, you know, as, as I'm not going to speak for everybody, but I'm pretty certain we'd all say that there, there's, there has to be more. And where we all come from, judging by our age demographic, is from a time where it wasn't spoken of at all, and you were shunned and 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 set upon by others if you did speak about it. Now we're at a point in our lives where we really don't care what somebody thinks about us. We're going to speak about it anyways. And if that helps the younger ones get get through it, then that'll be good for everybody. And I think that that's where it's going. I know that's where it's going from Toronto Fire Department to the Toronto Fire Service is where we're still becoming what will be a better situation for people like us who have seen things that maybe are uncomfortable sometimes. Mm. And it hopefully helps them down the road. Mm. Absolutely. Boy, I'd just like to mention one thing. 80% uh, of the calls are medical and 20 are fire related. And um, I'm, I'm trying to recall the scene, but uh, there are times, and I, I have one in particular, where uh, it's a fire call. And uh, usually the people who are on the end of the hose line are the ones that get into a or can get into some very, very difficult situations where you might not get out uh, without being uh, killed or burnt. And there are those times that occur in the fire service, other than just medical, there's also that type of call or it could be a, a difficult um, hazmat incident. There's other types of calls other than medical that can bring on the PTSD. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Um, thank you for sharing that, guys. Um, I live in Brooklyn, and um, I think it was really interesting when you all brought up in the documentary that a lot of, and Rod, you just spoke about um, having so many medical calls. I see so many people on the train, and you spoke about this in the documentary, which I am very happy that you shined light on that because the people that I see that are homeless, like the homeless population, I'm also from the San Francisco Bay Area, which has a huge homeless population right now um, because of the housing crisis in Silicon Valley. And every time I see like a homeless person and maybe they're acting out in a certain way, I have a background in healthcare, and I always can tell that there's some type of mental health mm -hmm. yeah. situation that just has not been diagnosed, or maybe it has been diagnosed, but it's not being treated. And so I really like that you guys shined light on that in the film, because a lot of people don't talk about that. When you see the people and they're on the train, and maybe they are being aggressive on the subway, it's like, that person probably needs help, but often as just a civilian, you don't know how to protect yourself, but also help that person. And so um, I really I really liked that you did that. Um, why, I'm sorry, I'm looking at my, my questions here. Um, 
how, what would you propose for a civilian to do when they're in that situation? Because sometimes you don't have time to like call the fire department or call a police officer. And these are just things that I want to know. I guess I'm being a little bit selfish in this podcast. Um, but like, what, what do you do when you know that this person is probably mentally ill, but at the same time, you need to protect yourself because you're on the subway or you're it's late at night and this person is out. And that happened to me, actually, like somebody thought I was somebody and I really wasn't. Um, what would you all suggest? Who's going first on that? Well, that's a tough maybe, one. Maybe Eric can answer that. <laughs> you have to protect yourself. Like, that's number one. You know, give the person the benefit of the doubt. Know that they have a backstory and know that they're a human being and deserve to be treated with respect. Mm -hmm. But just almost try to distance yourself. Wait for the people that are trained to come. Um, that would be tough. Like, if you're stuck on the subway train, it's pretty hard to get a away between stops, but I just stay calm, try to speak to them rationally. But like I said, most importantly, protect yourself. Mm. Okay, I definitely will. Pepper spray is illegal here, guys. So I just want you to know that. Like you can't protect yourself with pepper spray. So I'm really asking the questions for the people. And I know people watching this podcast will know that, especially a lot of women in New York. So I'm just putting it out there. I'm sorry that I'm using uh, it. I, I, I would add this. Uh, absolutely, it's about keeping yourself safe. And to also understand that uh, you may be dealing with uh, a very unstable mind mm -hmm. and uh, what might make sense in the situation to you might be absolutely the complete opposite of what that person is thinking. Mm -hmm. So it's, a, it's basically stay safe, get away as soon as you can without arousing the person anymore and let the authorities handle like fire police animals. Do not become a victim. Yes. Great words. Perfect. Yeah. That's the most important thing. Yeah. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Um, so the next question that I have for you all is, um, what can we as citizen, citizens do? Because I feel like we are taxpayers, right? Um, we, we pay into the fire department. And if these organizations aren't giving you guys access to the help that you need. What can we do? Because I feel like there are things that people like we did a podcast about we did a podcast and interviewed the men from uh, Bastards Road and it was about veterans and there are things that people can do to help veterans. What can we as citizens do to help firefighters to deal with their PTSD a little bit better? Hugs are nice. <laughs> you said clubs. <laughs> can we like donate or something i just i don't know i just feel like after i watched the the documentary i was like i just wonder what what are things that we can do um last week we did a podcast about the gibbons and they were like oh something that you can do is like call into these companies that actually have uh palm oil and and see if that they if, see if they can not use that and take that out and write to them. I just, I wonder like, is there something that we can do? Like, can we write to a Senator? Can we, I just feel like it's just re, like ridiculous. Like there, of course this 
this documentary will raise awareness, but there's no way that a citizen can watch this documentary and then just sit by and not say, what can I do to help these people that help me live my life every single day a little bit better? So maybe somebody can I'm going to throw my union hat on as I was union president for quite a few years. Okay. As well as a full-time firefighter. But, uh, uh, you know, the age-old uh, cure-all is, is money, but that's a bit of an oversimplification. I would say that the citizens should make sure that City Hall, who are our bosses in a sense, that they have the, the infrastructures in place, the programs in place, and make them very easily accessible because really at the end of the day, uh, the costs in sick time will probably more than offset the costs of enhancing the programs that they already have to, to, to make them even better and bigger and more thorough. Um, I really do say it's a cost-efficient kind of solution, and that's what the citizens can maybe push for. Mm -hmm. So I like guess more of a legislation thing, you think? Yeah, yeah in a way, with the municipal government, yeah, mm. city government. Okay. Well, you hear that, people. All right. For our advocates. Um, Pan, did you encounter any obstacles while filming? I mean, there were there were a lot of moving parts to this. And even though it took three years, what obstacles did you have to overcome? Yeah, I think we, well, we, we for sure had to overcome, I think, some of the, the obstacles dealing with, with um, city governments, you know, in terms of um, how do you do something like this without um, you know, upsetting the the privacy of, of its citizens. You know what I mean? How do you respond to dramatic events while still, you know, um, you know, respecting the privacy of of the people who are who are there, um, and while not getting in the way of the fire department and not creating a bigger emergency than what was initially, you know, being uh, being responded to. So, I mean, the hurdles I think was was gaining the trust of of city officials and the fire departments. You know what I mean? Making sure that the captains on scene know that my camera operator isn't going to get in the way. You know what I mean? And he's going to trip over right. the middle call. I mean, that was that That's was all. Going to ask Jack. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it it was you know, and then all that Jack's. But you know, I might have a different perspective, right? I, I sit here and think, oh, it's just great. Everybody was, you know, we're all we're all dancing in line together, like some type of you know poetic. Like our, uh, our artist, creative brain, and Jack is like, I got lives to save. I have yeah. lives to save. What? Okay. I had to explain a couple of times to people on the street that they were filming me and not them. Because people in the, you're from Brooklyn, you know what it's like. When you've got that many people around you all the time, something terrible can be happening right in front of you and the people are ignoring that. They're looking at the other people. And in, in Pan's case, when they were filming, a lot of times it was like, they were people were posing in front of the camera. Meanwhile, there's a person lying on the ground, oh, you know, no. having a heart attack or having a drug overdose, and they were the you know they were all yeah trying to get their faces in the picture. So, it you know it was it was interesting to watch, but studying human nature. 
I feel like it was probably def probably definitely a duality because like you have right. a job to do and you're doing that, but then you have it's like art imitating life, life imitating mm -hmm. art. It's like what what's happening. Yeah. Um, what was your favorite moments while filming? And we can all go around and answer that. Um, what was your most memorable moment on set or <laughs> for you, Pan? Oh, okay. Well, maybe we'll let Rob, Rod, or Eric. <laughs> <get> <laughs> No, for, for me, my favorite moment is when we went to Brooklyn and met all those. Oh, you were here and you didn't you didn't look me up. Yeah, we're coming over for dinner. For oh, okay. I'm like meatloaf and mashed potatoes. I hope you're ready. <laughs> <I'm not> <laughs> you know, so a fireman will go across the world just to get a free meal. Really? Okay, that's good to know. Well, yeah. I, I got to tell you this quick story. My brother was a lieutenant. God rest his soul. He passed away of Lou Gehrig's disease at 47. But they were making lunch. And he come into the kitchen and he saw what they're making. And they go, what's, he said, what's for lunch? And they go, oh, we're having a little uh, shepherd's pie. Uh, and he goes, shepherd's pie? How many times do I have to tell you I'm a meat and potatoes man? <laughs> well, how do I know it was going there? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that. But you were saying, Eric, you were in Brooklyn. <laughs> well, just riding with the other guys. We got the two different chapters together, had a hell of a good day, just a beautiful day to ride around. It was just one of those magical moments that you never forget. A lot of probably a lot of beautiful sunsets riding, right? I mean, just oh, as riders, I know you guys get to see some beautiful skies. I think I'm always, whenever I go to different places, like um, my co-host, um, she's also a, a film producer. She lives in South Carolina. And whenever I go to places where there's not as much pollution and you see the sky and the clouds, I always am just in complete and utter awe at the scenery and like what that that pure sky looks like. So I know you guys have some wonderful like sunsets when you're like out riding. I'm scared of riding a bike, I, like, but I commend you all for riding a bike though. Maybe one day I'll like, matter of fact, Eric, I'm, coming, I'm, I'm gonna come and ride on your bike. I'm gonna get in the back. <laughs> you can take me. What well, how safe is that really? How safe is that really? I mean, they're professionals. This, I mean, we have a whole documentary about that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Can, can you imagine Koya on the Sea to Sky Highway? Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Listen, listen, gentlemen. Over the edge. Listen, gentlemen. I like a little thrill, okay? I like a little thrill. <laughs> But like on the back, like I would never ride by myself. That's why I said I would just be like this the whole time. <laughs> no. All right. Down on the corners. <laughs> How about you, Rod? What was your most memorable moment yeah. in making this film? In making the film? Was it meeting me? Uh, the most memorable moment. Um, one of the one of the scenes where um, some of the neurological research was being done. I don't know if it was the most memorable, but it was the most profound. Mm. Um, and I, I I can't give the film away in a way, but uh, it was when I was informed by um, their neuroscientist 
as to what had actually happened, which was the complete opposite with what I had experienced. And it was, it was found to be due to the uh, therapeutic effect on the brain and its uh, neurological uh, structures. I, I just was, I, I couldn't believe what the, the doctor said to me at the time. I thought he was full of BS. <laughs> and, uh, and in fact, it, it was, and it was actually the way he said it. Yeah. Absolutely. I, that was actually, like I said, that moment in the documentary, very informative. And also, I think it also speaks to a lot of therapeutic activities as well, because sometimes when people go through various trauma, whether it's the loss of a loved one or, I mean, different people in different professions, different walks of life, um, and we won't give the film away, <clears throat> but what he was talking about, it's like it, it gives it, it gives us more language on the fact of like, this is what can happen when you do this activity. And mm -hmm. then there's that release. And it, it, and then you're not sitting here stuck in a cloud and trying to figure out, well, is this really something that I need for my life? And yes, it is necessary because it is a known fact. We, we've all lost people. Um, I lost my aunt last year to cancer. And um, when I would box and work out afterwards, I did feel changed. And my sister would say, yeah, I think you need to work out for your mental health. And I was like, not just to lose weight. And I'm like, uh. but later on, as I started to realize I am changed after that. And there is an effect that happens. And so then you take it more seriously and you make it a priority in your life. And then you set those boundaries with other people so that they respect what it is that you're doing because i mean i'm quite sure like when you tell somebody hey i need to ride motorcycles it's my therapy it's my religion and for other people sometimes they can probably be very i don't know maybe you guys can tell me very dismissive of that but you, you need that for yourself that is that is your therapy and you need people to respect that um so yeah sorry i got on my got on my uh soapbox right all right <laughs> but Jack, maybe Jack and then Pam, maybe you can tell us your most memorable moment on set. The most memorable moment on set. Or making, or making the film. Well, it, it, in the station, having them in the station was something new. Uh, I mean, we don't have strangers in our stations. We, in the upstairs of our stations, a little house has been there forever. And uh, it, it was different having people around in the actual station. And I think that's part of the reason why it, it, it is the way it is, because the the relaxing portion of it allowed at least me to speak frankly about things that, frankly, I don't think I've spoken about in the station before. And I think you know we've got some of that on film, and it was uh, it was more comfortable there uh, the, than it would have been had Pan and his crew asked the same questions in another environment. So I, it helped, I thought. So. Mm. Uh, and, I, and also the testing part was really interesting. So it, it, it was uh, extraordinary. So, you know, Oprah said that her show was actually her therapy. She had never seen a therapist a day in her life. And she said she didn't for her particular trauma. She didn't feel like she needed to because talking to other people and helping them heal and raising awareness of the issues that she wanted to talk about. She said that was her therapy and her show was her therapy. So there, there definitely is truth to that, Jack. Um, and let's see, Pan. 
Yeah. Um, well, there's like, God, it's hard to, this was so new for everybody in the crew. You know what I mean? I mean, when you do a movie about firefighting and motorcycle riding, you're literally going to, you know, the edge, you know, of, of the human experience in a lot of ways. You know, if you're, if you're riding with, you know, 30 bikers through the streets of Detroit, you know what I mean? At sunset, you know, that's a, you know, that's a majestic moment over here, you know, or if you're, you know, sleeping in the, you know, in a fire hall in the middle of Toronto and responding to events over a 24 hour shift in real time, you know, that's something you never forget. I mean, I think, I think definitely for us, you know, the 24 hour shifts when we would do that with, within the Detroit and Toronto fire departments, um, that, that was, that was pretty significant. Um, only because I understood the job a little bit more when I, when I had to get up at 3am and, and one, you know, you'll, you'll go at 3am and you might be responding to a false alarm in a high rise, but you're there anyways. Right. And you're getting up and then, but then a half hour later, you're responding to an, a fentanyl overdose, right? Those are two, two calls on the opposite end of the spectrum, right? One is a false alarm, one is life and death, but no matter what time of the night it is, you're getting up and you're responding with the same level of care and attention. And I thought that that was really memorable to me. Uh, I also definitely, uh, you know, coming out of Toronto, I heard that bloody bell for a couple nights. Uh, you know, that uh, my crew would always tell me, they go, I could still hear that damn thing in my head. Uh, but, it was honestly, I think, again, being on the front, being in the front seat of a firefighter's experience, even if it was for only weeks at a time here and there, um, you know, is something that'll never leave me. I think when we, when I drive through some of the neighborhoods in my community, um, I, I look at the community a little bit with with a different lens than I did prior to having rode along with the fire department. I think when you kind of see the edge of the safety bubble a little bit, you realize how hard somebody is working so that your child can walk down the street 3 p.m. on a Wednesday and um, and, and essentially have a feeling of safety and, and, and calm. You know what I mean? There's guys, men and women out there who, you know, they might love their job, but they pay a significant price to create that safety bubble for you. And um, and that's what I really learned making this film. So, uh, you know, it, it was it was it was extraordinary uh, to say the least. Pat, I, I thought for sure you were going to say when Jack let you turn the siren on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love that. I love that. Well, no, no I gotta say. I gotta say one last thing. I mean, I will say one memorable thing my crew will always take away is that nobody, no man, woman, or child would ever eat Jack's ice cream out of the fridge. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> I told the guys. You'll shut production down right now if you touch the bloody cup. What kind of ice cream? Oh, it's got to be chocolate. Okay. Wait, what brand? What brand? No, no, it doesn't really matter to me. Oh. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Well, let's let our audience see the trailer for this wonderful documentary that you all have made. All right. 
your big city public safety workers experience an awful lot of fire to the car wreck the shootings to the rescues the repetition of that just beats in your mind like a drum I've been doing this for 40 years now and the ones that were really horrible always stay it's just not normal stuff mentally, physically guys are burning out Have you ever in your career attended the funeral of a firefighter who's committed suicide? Yes. He was suffering, and we knew the incident. And we and the fire service have gone to funerals over the years many, many times that we knew the person had taken their own lives, and it wasn't spoken about. Your body is breaking down. I think those dark voices take over. Their hard drive's full. If you listen to what the firefighters are saying, get us help. For me, I know that I'm a different person once I've written. It's wind therapy. It's help. Bikers are bad. That stigma's still here. We need each other. We can survive with each other. They take us away from each other. You know, someone's not going to survive. When they see us coming up the street, bad guys get out their way. And firefighters, nothing else. And the motorcycle is my medicine. Well, there you have it. There you have it. There you have it. So, gentlemen, you can get ready for your newfound fame and awareness. <laughs> God help us. God help us all, man. <laughs> I know when I I know when I see a motorcycle group, I'm gonna look twice and be like, is that my Florian Knights? <laughs> Where can everybody see the film uh Pan? Where will it be streaming uh and released at? Yeah, so it's we're really pleased to announce that we're gonna be doing a North American theatrical release. Uh beginning so our worldwide premiere is in uh Vancouver, Canada on September 9th. Um, so that's kind of our hometown worldwide premiere. Then starting September 10th, time to the 20th anniversary of 9-11, it's going to be made available in select theaters across North America. So in New York and Detroit and L.A., um, Oklahoma City, you know, those types of markets, it's going to be in theaters, um, Milwaukee, Minneapolis. You know, we have a list that's going to be announced on our social media and on our website, uh, FlorianSnightsMovie.com. Uh, where people can kind of go and check out wh where the movie is going to be available starting September 10th. But we're, you know, with COVID and all this, all these things going on in the world right now, um, we're really blessed to be doing a theatrical release and letting people see the movie on the big screen. It's a really experiential film. You know, it, it, it kind of needs that immersive, you know, I don't want people, you know, sitting at home on their phones while they're watching this movie. You know, I, I need immersed in the theater, I think is going to be a really impactful moment for audiences. And then it's going to be available online uh, beginning um, November 23rd, uh, 
the company Gravitas Ventures acquired our digital rights. And so they're going to be um, pushing the movie to streaming and uh, and then the, the rest is history. But we're just we're so excited that over the next few months, you can see it in theaters across North America. And and all those announcements will be uh, on our website, FloriansNightsMovie.com. Wonderful. And are you on social media as well? Like yeah, Instagram page? yeah, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Florian's Nights Movie. Uh, on Twitter, the handle is just Florian's Nights. But um, but yeah, you can keep up to us. We have a really great publicity and marketing team that are going to be sharing, you know, be, you know, there's some extraordinary behind the scenes videography and photography from from making this film. So, you know, you get to see all, all that in addition to all the news about the film. And uh, but yeah, the making of might might need its own documentary one day. I was so. say, I need to see this ice cream. <laughs> well, that's a whole episode. You wait. <laughs> a docu series, docu series. Yeah, exactly. turning. And gentlemen, are you all on social media at all? Can anybody follow you on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter? No, I'm I'm not. I'm on Facebook, but that's it. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, not, none of us have that. Yeah, you're talking to the wrong crowd. You're talking to the wrong crowd. You not, you never know. I just wanted to ask. You just no. never know. I'm not gonna count you out. I'm gonna make sure. <laughs> well, gentlemen, it has been my absolute absolute pleasure to interview you all today. Literally an amazing film. Thank you all for your service and your current service, Jack, Eric, and and um. I'm a brain fart, Rod, sorry. And Rod, um, thank you so much for everything that you have done for your communities and for your service as firefighters. This was truly, truly, truly extraordinary and my pleasure to watch and interview you men and the Florian Knights. Uh, this didn't even seem like an interview. I just felt like I was catching up with old friends. So. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much. If you're in Brooklyn, you can come visit me. I will cook for you. Nice. <laughs> Don't like you your feed us, we won't leave. <laughs> I'm just saying, I mean, my family's from Mississippi and Louisiana, so I can I can throw down guys. <laughs> I'm just putting it out there. I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> all right. And for all of you watching, thank you so much. You can catch us every Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You know the drill. Thank you so much for all of your support. And you all have a wonderful day. And you guys can stay on in a sec. Thanks, well, thanks, Gwen. That was awesome. Thank, thank you very much. Gary, thank you. Thank you. <laughs>